Clint Adams is a former police officer who then studied psychology and later on rehabilitation. Clint's police work, injury management and senior HR roles and working with asylum seekers have given him deeper insights into the psychology and social interactions of individuals who are facing trying conditions. He has developed various behavioural and leadership programs to help people deal with various issues, all the way from PTSD to bullying and harassment. Clint is the author of Lighting the Blue Flame and I'd like to welcome him and you to our new series, Amy Asks About Mental Health. So thanks so much for joining us on Amy Asks About Mental Health. Clint, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me, Amy. Really a pleasure to be here. So one of the interesting things I found when I was, you know, the book that you've written and, and looking at your your history is it's so varied. So how did you go from being a police officer to now writing um, novels or not novels, <laughs> a, a book, a, a book about uh, mental health? Yeah, it's funny, um, you know, you start off when you finish high school to, to do certain things and, and I certainly didn't end up where I kind of, semi-plotted my, my plan. Look, I, I was very interested in um, psychology when I was at high school. This is around the time when Silence of the Lambs and all that stuff was coming out on mm. serial killers and profiling. And so I got very interested in, in, in that side of things. I'm probably showing my age now with, with the no, movie. No, it's all right. Back I, in I, 90s. I remember the movie well. <laughs> yeah, so um, I, I guess that's where a big interest came about with it. At the time of going to university uh, back in, you know, this was uh, late 80s, 89 is when I started university and started the degree. And I uh, it wasn't as broken down as it is now where you could do forensic psych and that kind of stuff. It was kind of a lot more broad. So I did a broad science degree with psychology as my major and, and I kind of did pharmacology as my minor, kind of putting my feet in both sides around whether I do counselling because I was very interested in people anyway and, and mm. people's behaviour and obviously they go hand in hand. Obviously it's not as bad if you're a serial killer but no. um, you, you get where I'm going with it. So, yeah, that was kind of where, where my interest initially began. I finished my degree with the intent of joining Victoria Police Force. I was living in Victoria at the time down in Geelong. So I joined the police force with the intent of hopefully getting into one of those squads in, in the future. I won't bore you with details but it didn't kind of eventuate the way I wanted to. So I actually started looking into going down the counselling path. So I did a at that stage, only Sydney University and the whole of Australia were running rehabilitation counselling kind of diplomas or postgrad diplomas. So I did the postgrad diploma with Sydney Uni. Um, I was looking at kind of roles that led into counselling, particularly um, down the track. And so I, I started applying for roles. Uh, I ended up getting one as a injury management slash rehabilitation counsellor for what was called Combrook back then, but it's called Recover Now. And they, they basically looked after people who had had either physical injuries and now because of that their, their psychological state wasn't very good and so I was about helping and counselling them or dealing with people with PTSD and all that kind of stuff. Mm. So, yeah, so what then happened was because of the police used to outsource that type of work for themselves, they kind of got wind of me being an ex-cop uh, working for this company and so they would actually send a lot of the police members to come and see me directly. They felt more comfortable talking to me as a, an ex-cop as well. Yeah. And so I was helping them. And so I was doing a lot of PTSD work with the police and counselling and, and debriefs when there'd been incidents and stuff like that where, you know, there was a shooting or something, a lot of police were involved. I'd come in and help the team and really focus on, you know, them 
I guess, hopefully not getting going down a path of, of being traumatised by it. Mm. So I did that for a little while. Then the police basically poached me over to come and do that for them exclusively. I then went back to the police, Victoria Police, worked as their counsellor and, and rehabilitation person who, who ran that. And then I, I kind of fell into HR. I, I was doing work for the police, um, got asked to then, you know, uh, go into a different area and managing a team. And so I started doing that. And that's kind of how I got into HR. And then over the years, I've developed my HR into change management models. I've also, um, over time, you know, back then, they weren't really doing health and well-being proper approaches as companies. You know, we've got a lot better at doing that now. People focus on people's health at work, not just yeah. their work and all that stuff. So I, I, I kind of, you know, did a lot more reading. I was doing a lot of research myself. And I started to put some programs together that I would run for my management teams. I would run for the teams themselves. And it wasn't just about resilience, but it ended up kind of pushing into that mental health and resilience. And I started to see patterns of if you're getting people's mental health up and they're feeling more resilient and they're feeling better about their lives, they're they're way more effective in, Mm. in how they are as employees, how they are as managers and all that stuff. So I guess it all kind of evolved into a lot of that work. And then I was working, the kind of big change came when I was working for a, uh, a health care provider. We had a big um, hospital and a heap of little kind of satellite hospital uh, centres, community centres stuff around down in Victoria. And what that did for me was gave me access to a lot of information on what we were spending in terms of interventions on young people. So I was mm. horrified to see, you know, 11 and 12-year-old kids getting, you know, being on antidepressants or they were being treated for the result of, of failed suicide attempts. And, you know, these things were, were quite horrific for me. And, you know, having been mm. a cop myself, I've been in some houses where, you know, you see young kids and you look at their parents and they're thinking, oh, this poor kid's got no hope of ever ending up any better than what the parents are. And so... I kind of really went on a bit more of a mission on how do I help these kids? How do I yeah. impact kids who maybe are disadvantaged and, and have those extra risk factors that some of the others don't? And that kind of got me thinking about, well, how can I develop programs around that? And that's where my school program kind of got its impetus. It started really, um, you know, I started developing that. I started researching more. And then... I kind of put it together and, and tried to take it to the politicians to see if I could get some funding to run it or pilot it. Yeah. And this was, oh, when was this? This was probably early, mid-2000, so no. 2005 or so. Yeah. Want to talk, I realise now that talking to politicians isn't the best way to go as much as they hold the purse strings. They're not subject matter experts on this stuff. So, And, and their agendas are to obviously get re-elected. So, you know, long-term interventions aren't the best thing. They don't see bang for their buck in their kind of period of window of opportunity to get re-elected. So it kind of made me rethink about how I wanted to do it. And that's where the book came in. I decided I was going to write a book. I wanted to drag general population people in, people who read the book, understand. Mm. So, so, so the book's written as a story of a young person who has decided he's going to take his own life because he's been bullied severely and but at the same time he wants to make sure that the bully the people that have laughed about him and not actually bullied him but you know contributed to the bullying continuing and all this stuff 
he wants to send a message out to them to say, look, we, uh, it's no good for me, but I want to see it stop in the future. So that's where I drag myself into the book as a, as a character in the book who's helping the school deal with other leadership stuff. But then the death of this young boy kind of brings my school program into the fore and I start right. talking to the school about ways to deal with it. So there's the dealing part with the actual loss of the child, but then there's also the what do we do next to make sure this doesn't happen doesn't again happen stuff. Again. Yeah. Correct. So, you know, that that's kind of how the book's written. The book's then written at giving advice to the education department on some of the things they can do better, which I don't think we're doing very well. And part of it is about this conversation piece. I focus heavily in the book on something called the dialogue model, which is out of another book called Crucial Conversations and How to Have Them. And yeah, it's about... I've done that course. I've done the okay. Yeah, so course. Yeah. you know from the dialogue model, again, you know, creating that safety to have a conversation is vital at school level, at adult level, and, and the stuff we talked about, about the Suck It Up Princess stuff, is exactly the type of tools that I don't think we're using very well and, and, and as well as we could because I see these adults who have all been kids come through and, you know, they're in their 40s and 50s and, and they still don't have these conversations with, with their, you know, their own peers, with their own kids yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So for me that's a critical skill that we don't really use much. What I think has been interesting, and we will talk more about your book in, in one of our sure. other episodes, but brilliant way of, of, of looking at, at the the issue um, specifically of, of suicide. When we're looking at PTSD, so post-traumatic stress disorder, yeah. when I think about 2019 and 2020, like, why would you relive that? <laughs> um, as a country in Australia, we had huge bushfires that yeah. traumatised everybody and I remember watching someone saying, I'm wearing a mask and it feels kind of funny now and I thought, oh, we were younger then, what did we know? And yeah. <laughs> then we had a flood and then we had COVID-19 and so as a society I feel like as a group and, and probably even globally because we're not obviously as bad as um, in terms of the virus for yeah. other countries, but it has traumatised a lot of people and a lot of people are now starting to come out and saying, yes, I have had some anxiety, I have had mental health and we have hotlines that people can call and we've seen an increase in people calling um, yeah. places like Beyond Blue and um, other specific COVID hotlines. And yet sure. there's still this stigma I'm wondering what your thoughts are about why we still have this stigma when, you know, we have politicians or our previous Prime Minister, you know, yeah. writing in his book that, that he yeah. had anxiety and depression. And Look, so everyone well, goes, wow, you're a hero, you've come out and you've said this. And yeah. yet if I was to come out and say I have this in in a workplace, people would potentially look at me differently. Yeah, I, th I think a big part of it is, and this is where I go back to people understanding how when we build up an undercurrent of what we call our personality is. When we're young, as I said, you know, if, if you're constantly getting negative kind of comments and your parents are using that fear factor, and you develop an undercurrent of fear in, in your body, you, your, your reactions. So let's say I'm, I'm a person who's quite a timid child and you know, there's violence around me as a child and I've developed that undercurrent of, of a bit of fear, but I'm also, you know, I don't get 
involved and I, I'm, I'm very small. I don't feel like I've got any control. And then as I come, I become older and older, I tend to maybe be a shy person. I don't tend to interact with a lot of people because I've got this this fear factor that kids aren't going to like me. Kids, you know, I don't. And so I, I kind of build that up all through through school and high school. And then my interactions are, are kind of limited because I, I kind of avoid wanting to talk to lots of people. And so I don't make a lot of friends. And, and I've got a few little friends, but you know, you're not. You've got that undercurrent again, that undercurrent of fear that sits there. And when I see that happen. Um, in the workplace, you see a lot of people who've had that as kids and then they become adults and they're at work and they don't see that they've got some control of those things. And so it becomes their their way of just dealing with it is almost avoidance. They don't tackle things on. They don't understand they've got so much more control over how they feel about it, being confident and all that. And I'm using this as a very broad example. Obviously, this doesn't apply to everybody in every position, but mm. I, I do see patterns of that. And so what happens is when, you know, even now, if people have a fear when they were a child that, you know, bringing up mental health or, or issues about being emotional mm. um, ha- has that fear factor for them, if you go back to that that dialogue model, when they start to have a conversation in their own head, there's a feel part to that and that feel part for them will be fear or feeling bad about it. So they go to silence. They won't have the conversation, Mm. even though it's been years and years later and they've seen lots of examples of someone else coming out, someone else talking about it. The prime minister's talking about this. Are you okay, Dad? This is where I think the reality would be that if, if someone did come out, then you, they actually are surprised that people don't react the way they thought they would. Like mm-hmm. I've run, I've run a number of sessions. You mentioned being a, a mental health first aider. I've actually run sessions for managers who, I used to work for a company that had a lot of farms, you know, really remote farms, and so mm-hmm. the managers would have to deal with their teams, you know, pretty much by themselves because there's no one else around and all this stuff. So I'd run sessions with them and their teams, and I'm always amazed, like. I'll run my session, I'll talk to them and give them some information about how the brain works and blah, blah, blah. And I'm always amazed that, you know, there's usually silence when we talk about it at first and then somebody will say something that they struggled with something Mm -hmm. and then amazingly everyone goes next, right, because people feel more comfortable. You don't want to be the first to go, but when someone else goes, things start to happen. It's a bit, it's even a bit like, you know, these, bloody Harvey Weinsteins of the world, you know, once one woman came out, all of a sudden all these other women just came out and people going, you know, how come these people have been holding on to this for so long and not come out and saying stuff? There's a fear factor to it, right? It, it wrecks careers. People feel I'm not going to be believed. So all these things, again, the fear factor and, and, and having that undercurrent, I guess it's about finding some courage to go, you know what, I'm going to take a leap of faith here I feel like crap. I want to talk to people about it. Let me see what happens. If, if my worst fear is that they're going to, you know, make fun of me, then I'll have to deal with that. But if, if it actually be, wow, they didn't make fun of me. They're actually talking about me and they're supporting me. So it's a kind of, you know, I, I think what we kind of need to do is maybe talk also about how people deal with that fear and have that few seconds of courage where you go, oh, you know, this will actually help me if I talk to people. But uh, and so, so many people suffer in silence and they don't know any different. And, and so what we need to do if we want to have an impact on that and, and change those things is really working on how we create those courageousness opportunities, how we create those feelings where people feel safe enough to do it. I mean, when I run sessions with teams, 
I try to coax them out of them. And some people will come and talk to me after the session and say, look, I struggle with it, and they feel comfortable. And I say, well, okay, are you okay with the next time we run this to have a conversation? And they go, yeah, okay, I'll do that. And so, mm. you know, um, getting people to, to kind of take that leap, talk about their experience. And, look, there will always be some idiots out there who will say something derogatory or silly and that kind of stuff. Yeah. But it's important that everybody else around also understands that they need to support that and say, hey, that's not cool, mate, what you're saying there and being derogatory. No one should support that and laugh about it. And that's kind of, you know, also in my book when I go through the bullying side, there's so many people that encourage poor behaviour and poor comments, whereas if everyone shut it down when someone said something, um, you see change. It's like um, you think about, you know, how gays are perceived now. 20 or 30 years ago, still frowned upon and people would say horrible things to people who were gay. And these things have changed because people have gone, we're not putting up with that. We're not putting up with people treating anybody, regardless of their you know, sexual position, any differently or same with race and all these things. It's, it's about standing up for you know, what's the right thing to do and we're here to support each other and there's no guarantees that, you know, I could be the most robust person and, and something happens. When I was dealing with the police, I used to have people who, you know, had a great childhood, awesome family, great support people and they had a, an event at work where someone's maybe tried to shoot them or something and they've turned, to, you know, to water and, and their coping mechanisms have gone out the window. It can happen to any of us. So it's not like, ha-ha, you know, you're just one of those people that affected any of us can be affected at any time it's just about how we can help each other get through yeah. those things and and that's the key i think one of the things for me before we wrap up this first episode cuz um mm-hmm. you you're happy to come back to keep talking to us of course um that's great thank you he's also normalizing it that yeah. if someone was to say i have a broken leg we go oh uh, are you in pain how can i help and yeah. yet if someone was to come out and say, I have panic attacks, there's this yeah. awkwardness of I don't know what to say and yes. or that it's fake or that I've, you know, just created something in my head myself and I just need to, and this is the phrase that gets me every time, snap out of it. So yeah. imagine telling someone with a broken leg to snap out of it. You just can't do that. Uh, no. So th- those are the types of things that, you know, I think as a society – and we are getting better at it, as you said, like with the LGBTIQ community, you know, it's it's normalising 50 years ago we're seen or, or longer ago we're, we're just seen as not okay. Yeah. But now yeah. we're getting to a point where it is okay to start having these conversations. It's just about having that bravery and then also knowing how to react when you hear that. And, and that that's usually the feedback I get, which is, what do you say to that? Uh, so we might uh, stop episode one there. And if anyone has any questions or, or that relates to this, please um, go to the Amy Ask websites and, and leave a comment. I think now we'll come back and um, we'll talk it through. But I awesome. am I'm, I'm interested in talking about this raising children thing because it's so scary as a parent. You know, you've got so much responsibility. So um, let, let's pick that up in, in episode two. So thank you very much for your time today, Clint, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me, Amy. Appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.